The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Matt Gluck with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 3rd, 2022. On August 25th, the Defense Department released a civilian harm mitigation and response action plan that aims to limit civilian injuries and damage to civilian environments resulting from U.S. military activities abroad. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin called this effort a moral imperative and said that the U.S. military would ensure it integrates mechanisms to protect civilians during conflict at all levels of military planning. In light of these developments, I've chosen an episode deep in the Lawfare archive from February 15th, 2014, in which Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes debated Connor Friedersdorf, a staff writer at The Atlantic, about the ethics and legality of U.S. drone policy. They discussed the geopolitical consequences of U.S. drone use and the grave psychological impact that drones can have on civilians. I'm Rithika Singh, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 15th, 2014. That was Connor Friedersdorf, you just heard, a well-known, outspoken critic of the drone program and a writer at The Atlantic. Last November, the University of Richmond invited Ben and Connor to participate in an Oxford-style debate on the ethics of drone warfare. I edited the event for purposes of brevity, leaving out the question and answer section with the audience at the end, but keeping Ben and Connor's opening statements and their responses to each other. While the debate touched on the legal issues behind targeted killing, it was really about the many implications, both positive and negative, of U.S. drone policy. These implications range from the precedent the United States sets in the international community to the psychological effects of drones. As America winds down the war in Afghanistan this year, al-Qaeda continues to morph and the United States struggles to define the boundaries of the war it has been fighting, these questions have become more pressing than ever. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 62, Wittes and Friedersdorf Debate the Ethics of Drones. Thanks for having me um, and uh, for the gracious introduction and this lovely hall, which I have never set foot in before. Um, I want to start with a what may sound like a sort of radical proposition, but I think is actually the place to start this conversation, um, which is that almost everything we debate in terms of drones is really about something else. Um, A drone is a weapon. Um, It's 
you know, like every other weapon that has ever come before it, it is designed to put greater distance between the person who attacks and the person who is being attacked. It's designed to increase the safety of the attacker at the expense of the attacked. And in that sense, it's no different from a stick or a gun or a Tomahawk cruise missile, which for a number of years prior to the invention of the drone um, was um, allowing people from extreme standoff positions, particularly ships, um, to attack very specific targets on the ground. Um, yet we have a completely different vocabulary for talking about drones than we talk about uh, almost any other weapon. Uh, we talk about, for example, drone warfare as though this were distinct from all other kinds of warfare. Um, we talk about drone strikes as though they were distinct from other airstrikes. We've been you know, doing airstrikes for a really long time and with a lot of tactical precision for a long time. Um, we have carved out an entirely different vocabulary for talking about drones. Um, and I want to suggest as a preliminary matter that that's wrong. Uh, the way we should think about this, rather, is that if it is ethical, if it is lawful, if it is moral, and if it is tactically appropriate to attack somebody with a stick or with a gun or with a tomahawk cruise missile, then it is lawful and ethical and appropriate uh, to attack that person. It may not be tactically advantageous or tactically appropriate, but it's not morally or legally inappropriate to attack that same person under the same circumstances using uh, a standoff uh, missile fired from, from an unmanned aerial vehicle. If, on the other hand, it is not legal to attack that person with ordinance under those circumstances, um, if it is not legal to kill that person, it is not legal to do it with any weapon, including a drone. And so the first point I would like to make is, and this is really a plea that I, I, I have this eerie feeling I'm going to come back to over and over again tonight, which is do not confuse the platform with the policy. Um, the drone is a tool to do something that we have been doing for a really, really long time. Not we as a society, we as, a, as, a, as the human race, which is kill other people for strategic purposes in something we call warfare. And um, so the, the, the first point is understand that the drone is just the latest tactical advance in weaponry, and it, it actually isn't more complicated than that. Point number two is, so why do we have this thing we call drone warfare that we think of so differently? And I want to suggest that the reason is that we are actually pervasively confusing the policy and the platform. Um, when we say we're uncomfortable with drone warfare, what we actually mean, I think it's probably three different things that we mean, none of which necessarily has anything to do with drones. They're just the implements by which we do it. So thing number one that we mean is that we don't believe in targeted killing and that we don't actually believe that we should be hitting the individuals that we're hitting in the targeted fashion that we're hitting them. Somehow, so targeted killing is a very interesting subject, and I suspect we will get to it 
um, in the course of the discussion tonight. But let's bracket that for now and say one thing that we're confusing with drones is the policy of highly individuated targeting of al-Qaeda operatives under the authorization to use military force both in Pakistan and in Yemen and in Somalia and elsewhere. So we're uncomfortable with targeted killing and we map that onto drones. Thing number two that we mean, we may be perfectly comfortable with the use of drones, but we really don't like the use of force on the territory of non-consenting countries. We, we have a sovereignty problem with the, forget who you're targeting, with targeting anybody on the territory of a country that's not really interested in having us conducting military operations there. Um, we tend to call those things drone strikes. But what we're really objecting there is operations on the territory of Pakistan, right? And we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we would object just as strongly if we, those things were done with fixed wing aircraft with people in them. Um, the third thing, and in my opinion, the most important thing that we confuse with drones is the question of whether we're at war at all. Um, if we replaced the U.S. Air Force with a drone fleet and we went to war with a country that attacked us um, or, say, expelling Iraq from Kuwait, something from which you know, there was a broad consensus that this was a, a reasonable military operation, though there were certainly dissenters from it, the idea that you would conduct your airstrikes with uh, unmanned vehicles as opposed to manned vehicles would be unremarkable and uninteresting. Um, simply a matter of force protection for the pilots that you can put in trailers rather than in harm's way. But in the context of overseas global counterterrorism operations done with military force, we have a really great doubt as a society that plays out across a lot of different areas whether this really counts as a war that we should be allowed to use war powers. We, we argue about it with respect to Guantanamo detainees, for example. If, you know, and underlying that is an anxiety about whether this is really a war. We have mapped that anxiety onto a particular weapons technology. Um, so I want to point out that none of this actually has very much to do with the technology. So what is the technology, and should we be anxious about it? If you accept that there is a war, if you accept that there is that it is lawful and appropriate in times to conduct operations on the territory of states that may not consent to that, if you accept that targeted killing is appropriate, should you a dissent from the use of drones? And my answer to that is that the question actually answers itself. Uh, the drone is a more discriminating weapon than any other available options for the, for the purposes for which it is being used, which is to say long-term surveillance of a potential target and the ultimate decision may be to hit that target with lethal force. So to oppose drone use as a categorical matter, you really have to believe one of two things. And I, and I think they're actually both self-evidently, one is self-evidently wrong to me and the other is actually immoral. Um, so let's deal with the wrong and then let's deal with the immoral. The wrong is the belief 
that there's a better option once you've decided you're, this is a target you're going to hit. Um, the belief that there's some other way to do the operation um, that will be less costly to civilian life, that will be less costly uh, in terms of your obligation to protect your own forces, and that will be more likely to hit the people that you want to hit and not hit the people that you don't want to hit. Drone strikes are not perfect. They are much, much better than what you can do with a, with, with a, with a manned aircraft. People get nervous. Those aircraft fly really fast. Drones fly really slowly. They have incredible sensor technologies. You can watch targets for very long periods of time. And you actually can make decisions. Okay, Connors Friedersdorf's gone to the bathroom. This is your moment where you can hit Ben Wittes. Um, don't make that decision. <laughs> um, are there civilian casualties? Yes. Is it a perfect technology? Absolutely not. If it is a, even if it were a perfect technology, are the people who operate them perfect? Absolutely not. Um, that's not the relevant question. The relevant question is, what would you do if you didn't have access to the drone, and would that be more or less costly, more or less effective, more or less um, prone to creating civilian casualties that you do not intend? I don't know anybody who has you know, been involved in airstrikes who believes that the answer to that question is anything other than that this is an extraordinary advance in the ability to target effectively, by which I mean both hit the people that you want to hit and not hit people that you don't want to hit. I want to touch briefly on the argument that I think is immoral, and then I'm going to shut up and um, uh, let, let um, turn the, the podium to Connor. Uh, there is a common argument made by people who oppose drone strikes um, that there is something wrong with not putting your own people at risk um, and that there's something sort of dishonorable about a weapon that you incur no risk in using. Um, I don't believe that warfare... Is, um, is a matter of uh, honor. I don't believe in the chivalric traditions um, of knights. Um, I believe in humanitarian protection. And I believe in killing the people who are lawful enemies who you are entitled under the laws of war to kill. Um, and I believe in discriminating as well as possible between the two. And I believe in protecting our own forces in the course of doing it. Um, and I don't believe that it is a good thing, a desirable thing, to require that somebody incur danger and thereby have worse judgment in the exercise of that discrimination in order to use lethal force. Um, I want them to be as safe as possible so that they make good decisions, so that they hit targets and not civilians. Um, and I do consider it the obligation, the first obligation of a military of any kind, 
is not to cause unnecessary risk to its own people as well as to the civilians in the vicinity that they're, they're targeting. So I'll leave you with the following point. If the issue is targeted killing, let's discuss targeted killing as a policy. If the issue is sovereignty, let's discuss sovereignty. These are hard issues. Uh, if the issue is whether there's really a war here at all, let's talk about it in those terms. But if the issue is whether it is appropriate to use drones, that is not a hard question. And the answer to it is there are certain operations for which drones are by far the most appropriate ethical weapon to use once you've decided to use a weapon at all. Thank you. Before I begin, uh, delve into my remarks in earnest, a quick thought experiment. What if I told you all that an armed predator drone was circling right now above the building that we're all in? It isn't, so don't worry. But if an armed drone was there, would it make you feel anxious or uneasy? Uh, if we could all hear the buzz of its engine, would it change the tenor of our time together? And one more thing. Let's imagine that this drone is hovering overhead because there's a terrorist hanging out 100 yards away from this building. We're often told how precise drone strikes are. Obama administration officials have described them as surgical. Now, if there was a surgery going on 100 yards away, I wouldn't be very worried that I would get nicked with the scalpel. Uh, would you be worried for your safety, though, if, if there was a drone strike that was going to happen 100 yards away? Or say you were in your bed one night, and in the house next door, a terrorist, someone everyone agrees is a terrorist, is lying there. Would you want a drone strike to take him out? And if next door is too close for comfort, for you personally, do you think that the U.S. military or the CIA should be allowed to carry out drone strikes on terrorists with innocent people living, say, next door or a couple houses down? Thankfully, the fear that drones bring to innocent people in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and Yemen isn't something that any of us is likely to experience firsthand, especially in the presence of an esteemed scholar from the Brookings Institution. Uh, it's me who has to worry if he goes to the bathroom, I think, more than the other way around. <laughs> in seriousness, I want to thank Ben Wittes for sharing the stage with me tonight. Uh, on a lot of subjects, we look at the world in very different ways. Uh, but I've always appreciated his commitment to participating in public discourse. Uh, events like this is an example, and I aspire to his command of what he calls lawfare as well. Uh, thanks to the organizers of this event and everyone who came out to watch, I really appreciate you uh, coming to listen. One day soon, I hope that the debate on the merits of targeted killing and drones are taking place not only at universities, but inside the federal court system. The Obama administration has tried to avoid that fate. Its lawyers would have us believe that targeted killing with drones is a state secret or else a so-called political question that isn't properly decided by judges. It's worth pointing out that in Israel, a state with security challenges far greater than ours, the Supreme Court grappled with this same question. Do judges have a role to play in targeted killing? And they didn't see it as a close question. They saw their role as determining the permissible and the forbidden in combat that implicates the most basic right of a human being, the right to life. They affirm that, quote, non-justiciability cannot prevent the examination of that question. 
I suspect James Madison would find their approach more prudent than what the Obama administration suggests. His administration would have us believe that not only are they empowered to kill an American in secret, but that even after the fact, courts should refrain from judging whether the killing violated the right to life of the person who was killed. Does anyone else think that that's a recipe for abuses? And does anyone think that that was, that that hasn't been made more likely by the presence of drones? Now, legal doctrine is not my area of expertise, so I want to begin instead with a moral question. Is it ever okay for the United States to kill people with drones? This is actually an easy question, Mr. Wittes once said, since drones clearly enable more discriminating and deliberative targeting than do alternative weapon systems. I want to repeat that. He thinks that once you've decided to use force, drones could be the most moral choice because they're more deliberative and discriminating. And that's an interesting standard. And it got me thinking about whether it's ever okay for the United States to use biological weapons. Is that ever the most moral option? They're terrifying. A taboo surrounds them, and treaties prohibit their use. And yet, imagine a remote al-Qaeda compound, and inside its walls are a few dozen adult bomb makers, and their wives, and many scores of children. Explosives are everywhere. A drone strike or a firefight would cause the whole place to blow up. But a U.S. scientist, say, has an alternative, a biological agent that, if dispersed over the compound, is designed in a way that it would target and incapacitate and kill only the adult males, only the militants, no one else. Would that discriminating bioweapon be the most moral to use in this scenario? That's a hard question. On the one hand, maybe you save a lot of innocent women and children. On the other hand, using a bioweapon would have implications that go beyond one discrete mission. Similarly, using weaponized drones has implications that go beyond any one discrete strike. Let's think through some of them. Number one, for a drone strike to be an option, the United States has to fund a drone industry to build its arsenal, negotiate leases for drone bases in various foreign countries, often non-democracies where the people don't want a drone base and would vote against it if they were afforded the rights that we think of as universal. In building this drone fleet, and the infrastructure to use it, America normalizes the notion of weaponized drones all over the globe, and it seeds an industry that is certain to contribute to the weapons proliferation. Number two, in thought experiments, we may be able to separate the questions, should force be used? And if so, what's the most ethical weapon available? But the question cannot be separated in reality. A fleet of drones, just having it, significantly lowers the costs of certain lethal operations. As we've seen, it also makes a kind of perpetual war possible in a way that wasn't possible before. As a result, lethal acts occur that wouldn't have happened in a world without drones. And they can often be carried out with more secrecy than would otherwise be possible, too. It's no surprise, actually, that drone warfare also entails composing an official, albeit secret, kill list. Number three. The ability to hover in one place for hours or even days does permit deliberation and discrimination. But that same constant hovering imposes a cost on many thousands of innocents. Because drones don't just affect their targets, actual and aborted, they affect whole communities that live underneath them. And the people who live in communities where drones hover overhead report severe anxiety, terrified children, mental health problems, trouble sleeping, paranoia. And after drone strikes occur, pervasive mistrust as people wonder, if a local helped call down the Hellfire missile. Communities stop gathering in large numbers to 
prayers or public meetings when drones are present there, forced to live in what any of us might consider a dystopia if we were forced to live there. And as we know, fighter jets weren't circling over communities like this before the advent of drones. This is something that drones have made possible. How would you feel if every night you had to tuck your children into bed as the buzz of drones overhead made them afraid that they'd never wake up again? This is a cost that we don't often talk about because we usually talk just about the cost of the people who are killed, whether innocent or guilty. So asking if there is any discrete targeted killing where a drone is the most ethical option turns out to tell us very little. Like landmines or bioweapons or torture to prevent a nuclear holocaust, a drone strike might be the most ethical option in some given situation, but a blanket ban might nevertheless be an ethical imperative because there are so many terrible consequences that flow from building, maintaining, and using a fleet of armed drones. So I don't think it's an easy question. And I also think that the more relevant formulation is, can maintaining a drone strike program ever be ethical? And to me, that's a very tough question. Since my time's limited, I want to focus on a different question that is even more urgent, and that is, is America's actual drone strike program ethical, the one that we've got right now? and that is really our only experience of drones since they're a relatively new technology, at least in combat. And to me, that's an easier question. What we're doing now is not ethical. Uh, what's least defensible is how we respond after killing innocents, presumably by accident. The moral thing would be to acknowledge responsibility, to apologize, to explain how it happened and what steps are being taken to prevent the same mistake, and to compensate the victims. But our typical response is more like what you'd expect from a hit-and-run driver. We take no responsibility, we offer no explanation. If steps are taken to prevent the same mistake, they're taken in secret, and I hope that that's going on, uh, and they're happening without the benefit of independent, disinterested reformers. And worst of all, the innocents, the people with a limb blown off or impoverished families who have a child or a breadwinner who has died, they're left to bury their dead and repair their homes at their own expense, often they can't afford to. And the survivors have no idea why their loved one was killed. And not having that answer, too, imposes a cost. And the U.S. does nothing to reassure them that they won't be next. We just let them live with the kind of question, why did that happen? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There are also numerous reports that the U.S. carries out so-called double-tap drone strikes where we fire a missile at someone and then fire another at rescuers who rush to the scene or attend the funeral. Of course, it could be the case that a rescuer or a funeral attendee is also a terrorist, but if we do in fact carry out these double-tap strikes, we effectively prevent rescuers from rushing to the scene when it's innocents who are hit or killed. And again, this double-tap drone strike, it's you know, conceivably possible in a world where you just have fighter jets, but it didn't happen. 
Finally, there's a question of proportionality. Drone strikes are a response to a real threat. Terrorists are bent on attacking us. And at the same time, terrorist attacks are relatively rare. Terrorist attacks perpetrated by people in, say, Yemen, as opposed to homegrown threats like Tim McVeigh or the Sarnayev brothers, are even more rare. Are all the people, including innocents, that we've killed in, say, Yemen really a proportionate response to the threat that we face from the terrorists in those remote areas? I'd say that it's far from clear. And when the Obama administration says that it only takes lethal action when the target poses, quote, an imminent threat of violent attack, I, I think it's not credible to suggest that the thousands we've killed were all imminent threats. I suspect that the true standard is hidden because it's indefensible. If our drone program is immoral, does it at least keep us safer? The Obama administration says so, but there's nothing resembling hard evidence to suggest that they're right. I trust you're all familiar with the argument that we're creating more terrorists than we're killing. Al-Qaeda certainly uses our drone strikes as a recruiting tool. There have certainly been uh, convicted terrorists who have spoken about drone strikes. For example, the guy who attempted to bomb the Times Square said in court that the drone strikes in Somalia and Yemen and Pakistan are one of the things that upset him and radicalized him. And at the very least, drone strikes are fueling anti-Americanism. And we have reason to worry that President Obama isn't as attuned to blowback from drone strikes as he ought to be. Every president has this perverse incentive to focus on threats that will unfold uh, before the end of a four-year term or two four-year terms. And they have this perverse incentive to focus too little on keeping us safe in the long run. Now, I think that in the long run, it isn't just blowback that we have to worry about. There's a strong case to be made that Americans are being short-sighted in how they see weaponized drones themselves. Our military is the strongest in the world. The gap between our Air Force and the next best is huge. And the gap between our Air Force and the next best, we, we have uh, had an even bigger advantage because of our monopoly on drones, virtual monopoly. Other countries have them, but we're far and ahead. Uh, but that's a temporary situation. These are naturally asymmetric weapons. They're cheap. They're far easier to build and operate than a fighter jet, relatively inconspicuous. As they spread to other states and to non-state actors, they'll decrease our edge. Perhaps we should have used this window when we're the undisputed leader on drones to shape international norms more to our long-term advantage. Instead, we've set precedents that we'd hate to see other countries cite. As we legitimate drone warfare, we legitimate it for everyone. Now, I think this short-sightedness raises a larger question that isn't often asked in the drone debate. How competent and trustworthy is America's national security leadership? That seems like a relevant variable. If the people in charge enjoyed a deserved reputation for prudence and moral behavior in waging the war on terrorism, we might be more inclined to permit them a tool like drones that significantly lowers the cost of killing people. On the other hand, if the national security bureaucracy often acts imprudently or immorally or unlawfully, we might be more inclined as citizens to deny them this tool or at least to subject it to extreme oversight. Now, what I see is a national security state that has a lot of wonderful, intelligent people in it, honorable people who want to do their best to protect America, but that also has bad apples like any large organization and that ultimately based on its record and probably based more on uh, bureaucratic tendencies than individual tendencies is undeserving of our trust. We saw that it failed to prevent the September 11th terrorist attacks, of course, misrepresented the threat posed by Iraq, invaded that country with insufficient planning, presided over the abuse of detainees at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay, initiated an official program of torture, and broke the law with warrantless spying on Americans, 
lost the trove of WikiLeak documents and then the Snowden documents. And after all of these failures of competence and character, we're supposed to trust the CIA and the Pentagon to get good intelligence prior to drone strikes and to always follow the law even though they're operating in secret and to act morally in a way that neither stains our national honor nor creates needless enemies and to do all that in secret? We're supposed to trust the CIA with its very recent history of torture and then illegally storing evidence of that torture to run a secret killing program that adequately safeguards innocence? We're supposed to trust a government that threw many innocents and low-level offenders into prison at Gitmo, along with a lot of guilty people too, telling us they were all the worst of the worst to direct drone strikes that they now say are only against the worst of the worst. And I don't think that we should trust them to do that. And there's so much more particular to our drone strike program that should deepen our mistrust. The Obama administration's decision to treat targeted killing with drones as a state secret, except when it wanted to brag about a kill. A definition of militants that encompassed all men of military age that we happened to kill. The many government officials who've lied about the number of innocents killed in drone strikes. The Obama administration's alarming notion that it is empowered to secretly order the extrajudicial killing of American citizens, even if they're not on any traditional battlefield and the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki's 16-year-old son. In that case, a presumably innocent teenager was killed, and though an American citizen, the government has offered no explanation for his death. In Jeremy Scahill's book, he's a reporter who writes a lot about drones and who's done reporting on the ground in Yemen, he talks about how John Brennan, at the time of President Obama's senior advisor on counterterrorism and homeland security, quote, suspected that the kid had been killed intentionally in order to review. I don't know what happened with the review, his source said. His source was a former senior Obama administration official. So an American kid is killed, and the president didn't know why, according to this book, and at best a drone strike was ordered on faulty intelligence. At worst, the kid was killed deliberately. Even John Brennan, Obama's chief counterterrorism officer, suspected foul play or at least thought it was plausible which isn't a good sign. He conducted a review, but the whole thing remains cloaked in secrecy. And this has gotten a lot of attention because this kid was American. Uh, I suspect that there are non-Americans who get even less attention and have even less transparency, uh, less of a push for transparency in their cases. Also objectionable is the Obama administration's habit of treating various matters as classified and then authorizing leaks so that Obama administration officials can get out their story uh, anonymously without the degree of accountability that would come from an official putting their name behind it. This has characterized a lot of policies, but the drone policy as well. And this ought to, uh, again, cause us to question the legitimacy and the prudence of this drone policy. Commenting on the subjects of drone strikes and transparency, Robert Chesney pointed out that the Obama administration has been quite public in explaining its belief that the authorization for use of military force passed after 9-11 authorizes it not just to kill al-Qaeda members, but associated forces. I wonder, by the way, whether Congress, when it passed the authorization, understood themselves to be approving drone strikes in Yemen 11 years later. Anyway, Chesney goes on to point out that the administration has resisted public disclosure of which groups come within the scope of that understanding, basically who constitutes these associated forces. And he adds that for that matter, it has not been particularly forthcoming on these issues with Congress. Is this permissible, an administration that isn't even transparent about who the enemy is in the war that it's waging? And is there any doubt that some of these associated forces that it is targeting 
it would not be targeting if it did not have these drones that significantly lower the cost of the ability to target them. Now, I think uh, from reading some of his past work that uh, Ben Wittes and I do agree that America's drone strike policies ought to be more transparent than they are now, and so I won't dwell on the arguments in favor. But I do want to comment on their implications because not only do he and I agree that drone strikes aren't transparent enough, here's something that he wrote after reading a couple of human rights reports that recently came out on drone strikes, and this is something I also believe, and I quote, it is impossible for a modestly moral person to read these reports without something approaching nausea. They're grisly. They involve the deaths of numerous and apparently innocent people. The deaths appear to have taken place at the hands of the United States. The reports involve some substantial new reporting on these incidents, and they thus raise serious questions about the way at least those drone strikes they cover took place. What went wrong? Why? And how can we minimize the chances of such disasters in the future? And I'd suggest that if we don't know what went wrong or why, or how we can minimize the chances of similar disasters in the future, and if in general we worry that our drone strike program isn't transparent enough, which is to say it's more vulnerable to abuses than it ought to be if it was more transparent, if we believe all that, it's our responsibility to call for a moratorium on drone strikes. They should stop at least until they are made as transparent as they ought to be, and until we know what goes wrong and why and how to fix it. That's what you do when a program induces nausea. You call for it to stop. But lots of people who happily concede various flaws in the drone program won't go so far as to call on the Obama administration or Congress to halt it, pending reforms that they agree are necessary. Rather, we get wrapped up in these conversations about whether drones in the abstract could possibly be ethical in some given situations. Uh, it's an interesting debate, and maybe we'll get into it even a little bit more as the night goes on, uh, but for now, it seems to me that there's a persuasive case that the actual drone policy, the only one that we are intimately familiar with in the world, is not moral, is not ethical. And if it could be made ethical in some way, if reforms could be made to make it so, it at least ought to stop until those reforms are made. Thanks. Uh, so I want to respond on, on three, three levels. Um, first, I want to address uh, Connor's fascinating comparison of the drone to a hypothetical biological weapon. Um, I second want to address Connor's um, insistence that we should not talk about drones in the abstract as a weapon, but rather talk about uh, the broad sweep of administration counterterrorism policy and secrecy. Um, and third, I'd like to address um, the one point that Connor makes that I think is actually particular to the drone, um, which is the point that um, the drone is, causes sufficient safety that it lowers the cost of a resort to force um, to the point that it makes violence more likely. So let me take these three points in turn. I'll try to be very brief because uh, I want to have as much time for you all to ask your questions as possible. Um, so I, my argument for the propriety, legality of drone use 
is rooted in the fact that this is a highly discriminating weapon. The whole history of the human rights movements, even predating the human rights movement, by the way, has been a history of insisting on greater discrimination and targeting, on reducing the burdens of warfare on civilians, um, on making sure that you could be more proportionate, more discriminating, right? Um, The drone is, of course, a major advance in this. Um, It allows you to be more discriminating. It allows you to target more efficiently, more effectively. the, the, the worlds of military effectiveness, targeting effectiveness, and civilian protection here are closely interrelated. And yet the example that Connor comes up with um, as what he holds this highly new... We can argue about how, how much more discriminating it is, but there's no question it's much more. The example that he uses is an example of a weapon banned in part because it is, its inherent lack of discrimination is, makes it, in the, the eyes of the world, a barbarism to use. That is biological weapons. Now, he does an interesting dance when he does that because he posits a biological weapon that could be perfectly discriminating. But, he, in, it, but, but he, by doing that, he removes the feature of the biological weapon that caused the world to ban it utterly. Um, So I want to point out, first of all, that that the example that he gives is actually remarkably telling. And I cannot think of a situation in the world in which we have looked at a weapon that allows you to be more discriminating, to protect civilians better, um, and to target the enemy and not the people around him more effectively, and looked at that and said, okay, let's ban that. Um, So that's point number one. Point number two, I I started this discussion by saying almost everything we talk about when we talk about drones is really talking about something else. Um, And Connor started talking about drones, um, but he quickly left the subject. And I just want to run through very quickly the issues that he talked about. Um, He started by talking about how uncomfortable it makes people when drones are hovering over their neighborhoods. Let me tell you something, it doesn't make them more comfortable being buzzed by F-16s, okay? Yes, I concede, it is not a nice thing to be living under drones, but you have to ask the question, what weapon would you be living under otherwise? But then we got into a different set of subjects, subjects that really aren't about drones. Um, We got into questions like, um, should we be supporting the development, seeding the development of a new weapons industry? We got into questions like, um, is there too much secrecy in the Obama administration's targeted killing program? Uh, Some of the people that the Obama administration has targetedly killed think about Osama bin Laden, were not killed with drones. This is a problem if you believe that this is a a deep problem. It's a problem that resides in the decision to target people on an individual basis. You have to then figure out who your targets are. It's not not fundamentally a problem about what weapon you choose to do it with. Um, We talked about how much we trust the national security apparatus of the United States. 
That's an interesting conversation. It doesn't really have anything to do with drones. We might as well ask the same question about nuclear weapons. If you don't trust the President of the United States and the people around him with uh, a a small fixed-wing aircraft piloted from Nevada with two or three missiles on it, why should you... You know, you have a much bigger problem in the nuclear arsenal that the same group of people controls. This is not fundamentally a problem about drones. So what did Connor talk about that is uniquely about drones, that is really a drones issue, rather than a objecting to the war on terror as the Obama administration defines it and prosecutes it issue? And the answer to that, I think, is when he says a weapon that makes the resort to force easier. These are my words, not his, but I don't think he'll object to my characterization. A weapon that so lowers the cost of the use of force that you're apt to use it more. This enables perpetual warfare. I hope that's a fair paraphrase. Um, And in this point, he is onto something. Um, And I want to concede up front that he is onto something. If you have weapons that from halfway around the world allow you to, I won't say surgically with pinpoint accuracy, but I will say with relative surgical accuracy, with, relative, with really good intelligence, target individuals, the temptation to use that weapon to solve problems that you would otherwise have to solve by other means or leave unsolved is big. Sometimes you are going to err in the wrong direction in that regard. And you're going to do things that, because you have a solution, a tool that will help you solve a problem, you're going to try to solve it and you're going to regret the way you tried to solve it. That is an inevitable feature of the development of that weapon. I concede that. But here's the other side of that. Many of the actions we have taken using drones are not examples of that. They're examples of the opposite effect, which is things that we would have responded to anyway, but we would have responded to with much greater force. I don't believe that we would have let al-Qaeda fester in the Fatah regions in Pakistan unmolested for long periods of time. I don't know what the mechanism by which we would have dealt with that problem is, but I'm confident we would have felt compelled to do something about it. Maybe we would have used manned aircraft. There would be a lot more dead civilians. Maybe we would have urged the Pakistani army to come in with major artillery barrages, as they have been known to do. Uh, the, the, The clearing of the Swat Valley by the Pakistani army is a very interesting thing to look at for anybody who opposes drone use. But I'm confident what we would not have done is let al-Qaeda hang out and plan things over long periods of time in an ungoverned region of Pakistan after what happened when we did that in Afghanistan. And so the question is, not simply does the drone strike make the resort to force easier, the question is also the reciprocal question, does the absence of drones often necessitate much greater, much more damaging uses of force? Um, Finally, there's one other side of making the resort to force easier, which I think is worth 
pointing out. Um, the United States was not willing to engage in Libya militarily, which was a you know, major humanitarian intervention by, by the European powers that we got into late. We were not willing to do it if it involved any risk to our own forces. Uh, we did bring drones, and we had unique capability that played a very big role in the fall of Gaddafi, actually, that were based on drones. Um, and so, yes, does, does, the does the drone make the resort to force easier? Sure does. Um, does it make it more possible sometimes in humanitarian interventions, too? Yep. Um, and so I actually accept Connor's point that you're dealing with a weapon that makes the contemplation of the resort to force easier. I merely ask that you look at the holistic components of that observation and ask yourself, A, how, how often do you want force resorted to? That's not a simple question. And B, what would you do if you couldn't resort to force with a drone? Would that mean peace? Would that mean law enforcement? Or would that mean some greater exertion of military force? Thank you. Connor? Yeah. Um, I have a few things to say, and they're going to be kind of scattered. Um, one thing I wanted to respond to was this idea that if I trust the Obama administration with something as powerful as nuclear weapons, then surely I should trust them with these little fixed-wing aircrafts piloted from Nevada. And, well, I, I want to begin by saying that nuclear weapons are terrifying, and when you go back and read about how close the United States and the Soviet Union came at certain points to nuclear exchanges. I think there's good reason to be terrified about nuclear weapons. I don't see any alternative uh, to us having them at this point. Uh, but I do trust the Obama administration more with drones than with nuclear weapons because there is this huge cost to using nuclear weapons in a way that is immoral or imprudent, right? Killing millions of people, possibly uh, having a nuclear exchange, um, and we have a half century of moral norms that would make any president take that decision very seriously. I think that the psychology of drones is something different, that it would be very easy to sit in the Oval Office and think, well, we've got these bad guys over here, and I can use drones and maybe get them, and maybe there'll be some innocent people killed, but hopefully we'll get them, and... I think that human psychology uh, would make us much more likely to overuse drones in situations when we shouldn't than to overuse <laughs> nuclear weapons. I also think that the secrecy with which drones can be used uh, would permit a president to think, uh, even a malign president, to think, well, I can get away with these little individual killings in a way that I could never get away with dropping a nuclear bomb on someone. So, so I really do think that there, is, uh, there are a couple of important distinctions there. Um, I also want to delve into the subject of uh, whether drones are a special weapon that's different uh, or whether they're just like any other weapon. And I think that there's a, a hypothetical uh, that kind of drives home why I think that they're different. Um, so let's imagine, right, that the President of the United States could be empowered 
so long as he or she is in office, to kill anyone just by focusing mentally on that person for 60 seconds, right? Now, by Ben's standards, this would be far more deliberative and far more discriminating than drones. We could completely get rid of uh, collateral damage. We can completely get rid of innocent civilians. The president just thinks of the person, and that person dies, and no one else, right? And we could kill a lot of our enemies that way, too. Would it be a good idea to vest the president with this power to think people dead? I don't think so. Uh, and I don't think so, partly because it could be done so easily that it would be misused, because, you know, for the same reason that we don't give a gun to a child, they don't have the capacity to use it responsibly in the long term. And the other point I wanted to raise is that if it really is, as Ben says, if drones are really just a weapon that is going to be used to kill people uh, that were going to be killed anyway, but it's just doing it more precisely and with, with less collateral damage, if, if, that really, if reality really resembles that, it would seem to make sense that we should be going to other countries and helping them get drone programs up and running so that when they kill people, they, you know, they're going to do it anyway. They can at least do it uh, more responsibly with more deliberation and kill fewer innocent people. Um, but I suspect that this isn't how we think about drones in other countries, that actually it terrifies us that other countries would get drones and use them in some of the ways uh, that we're using them in the United States. And I take Ben's point about how the fact that drones makes the use of force easier uh, you know, I can imagine situations where drones could be used for humanitarian purposes and, and we would think, that, oh, this is great that this humanitarian intervention happened that, that turned out empirically to save a lot of people and it wouldn't have been possible in a world without drones. But it doesn't just make force easier to use. It doesn't just put a lower barrier to war for the United States and our wise decisions to go to war in these humanitarian interventions. It does it for everybody, for every country in the world. And so ask yourself if, if, you know, if we presume that eventually every country in the world is going to have at least some crude drone, since they're not very expensive, or at least every country with any kind of military, if the cost of going to war goes down, if all of these countries can go to war more easily uh, and use force more easily, is that a good thing for the planet? Or should we, right now, be trying to inculcate a norm against drone use? Uh, or, or at least international norms that constrain drone use to the kinds of humanitarian interventions that Ben was talking about, at least some international framework that isn't just, oh, we have drones and we can do what we like in secret with them. Thank you, Connor. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks very much for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.